Well, good morning. I'm Cinda Sullivan, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To all of you ladies here at Habits of the Heart, greetings. I just couldn't resist that. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, I've spent some time thinking about James 1.1. When I was asked to do this teaching, I was um, wondering it, what it would be like to have one verse to cover. Would it be easier or would it make it more difficult? And I often also wondered if I could get a 30 to 35 minute teaching out of roughly 19 words. However, as I've thought about these words, I'm amazed at all that we can glean from this one verse. And I now realize the importance of this greeting and how it serves as a foundation for how we should think about the rest of this letter. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you give us understanding as we begin this study of the letter of James. Thank you for Christ and the hope and the purpose that he gives to each one of us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let me read these 19 words from the ESV Study Bible. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. As we look at this verse today, we're going to consider the following. Who is writing the letter? And we're going to spend some time thinking about this. By what authority does he write? To whom is he writing? And then a few other observations as we consider these questions. And then I think we get a really good grasp for why he is writing this letter. So first of all, who is writing? At first reading, it doesn't appear that the writer gives us much, much detail about his identity. We, of course, know that his name is James. But who is this James? And does it really matter if we know for certain? As you read the introduction in preparation for today's lesson, you see there are four James mentioned in the New Testament. Three of these James are mentioned in one verse. That's verse 13 of Acts chapter 1. And you can turn there if you want. Um, you don't need to. We won't be there very long. But if you like to follow along, that's fine. But this is when the apostles and others were gathered in the upper room after Jesus' ascension. The book of Acts is the historical count of the beginning of the church and begins following Jesus' resurrection when he spent 40 days here on our earth proving that he is alive. As scripture says, by many proofs. And then he ascended to heaven. As he ascended, it says the apostles were looking up to him and he disappeared in a cloud and two men stood by in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, the scriptures then tell us that these men returned to Jerusalem, and that's where we pick up verse 13. It says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So here we have three of the four James mentioned all in one verse. And I know this is in your introduction, but we're going to look at these James quickly. The first James mentioned is one of Jesus' 12 apostles from the family of Zebedee, brother of John, and a very close friend of Jesus. 
of all the James he would seem most likely to write this letter. However, he was martyred early in the history of the church, and we can read about that in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Herod Agrippa I had him executed by the sword, and they say that meant beheaded. John MacArthur states in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, that this James was the first of the apostles to be killed and the only apostle whose death is actually recorded in Scripture. Most scholars say he was killed too early to have written this letter, and most scholars believe this letter is written in the mid to late 40s A.D., although that's debated. <clears throat> the second uh, James is James, the son of Alphaeus. He was also one of the original twelve, but there's little mentioned of him. His name is really only mentioned in those lists of apostles' names. And most scholars say he would not have been prominent enough to write this letter and probably wouldn't have written without taking the time to clearly identify himself to his readers. Then the third James is the father of the apostle Judas. And the only time his name is mentioned, and I think they said twice, is to distinguish between Judas the apostle and Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. That's the only reference to him, so it's not likely he's the writer. If you read the next verse, verse 14, you see that it's likely that the fourth James was also present in the upper room with the others, and that is James, the Lord's brother. Verse 14 then goes on to say, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And let me just add here that scholars point out that the Greek word for brothers in that verse and the context in which it is written suggests siblings. We know that Jesus had brothers, and one was named James. These would be what we would consider his half-brothers, those children that were born later to Joseph and Mary. We read in Matthew 13:55 that when Jesus was in Nazareth and teaching in a synagogue, many were questioning, who is this man? And by what authority does he speak? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? And then they asked, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And they mentioned he had sisters as well, but not by name. In Douglas Moo's commentary on the letter of James, which is very comprehensive when it comes to establishing the writer of this letter, he also notes that only, four, or only two of the four James mentioned would have been prominent enough to write, however only one lived long enough to write, and that would be James, the Lord's brother. Moo gi gives a very strong case for this James, which leaves me thinking, then let's just say this is James, the Lord's brother, and be done with it. Because establishing this James as the writer of this letter makes for some wonderful insights, as well as a great story. And more about that in a minute. Well, the reason scholars don't emphatically state that the writer of this letter is the Lord's brother is because this James makes no mention of it. And because we have to sort through so many people by the name James. Now, just on a side note, as I was thinking about this, you can tell the Bible is an authentic historic account because of the multiple same name. If this was a myth or made-for-TV movie, we could imagine that each character would have a separate name. However, it isn't a myth, and it is historical. And just like in real life, individuals have the same name. Apparently, James was a common name at that time in history, 
and there might well have been four of them in that upper room. Now, I said that identifying the writers of the Lord's brother makes for a great story. And why is this? Well, we know from Scripture that Jesus' brothers, his siblings, did not believe Jesus during his earthly ministry. In John 7, 1 through 5, when Jesus was going about teaching, we read this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then scripture goes on to say, For not even his brothers believed in him. So here we find Jesus' brothers not only mocking him, but encouraging him to go where he might be killed. In Mark 3, verse 20 and 21, after Jesus had appointed the 12 apostles, we read this. Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. We also know from John 19:25 that when Jesus was crucified, standing at the cross were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Did you catch it? Three out of four of those women named Mary. <laughs> that passage also mentions that the disciple Jesus loved stood nearby. And we know scholars have always believed this is in re reference to the disciple John. If you remember moments before Jesus died, he said this, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. No mention of Jesus' brothers, his siblings, being present on that day at the cross when Jesus entrusted his mother's care to his friend, the disciple John. So you see why it's interesting that this James, the Lord's brother, would now be the writer of this letter. Well, what else do we know about James, the Lord's brother? We read in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, that Paul had been away from Jerusalem for three years, and when he returned, he said, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Paul considers James an apostle. Well, what is the definition of an apostle? The meaning of apostle is one who has been sent. Typically, when we think of apostle, we think of the 12 apostles who were commissioned by Jesus and, who, and they had delegated authority for certain tasks. Apostle is also used in the letters of Paul, of those who were not a part of the original 12, but who, like Paul, were witnesses to the risen Christ and commissioned by Christ. Apostle is also used in the New Testament in a more general sense to refer to messengers of the churches. So the exact reason for Paul applying the title apostle to James is not clear. However, we know from the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to a James. Most scholars say this is in reference to James, the Lord's brother. Perhaps Paul refers to James as apostle because like him, Jesus appeared to James following his resurrection. That's the belief of many scholars. Many of them believe this is the beginning of James placing faith in Jesus. Or James may have placed his faith earlier, and this is when Jesus 
commissioned James as a leader in the church. We know James, the Lord's brother, became a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. He is the James in Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Acts. In Galatians 2.9, he's called a pillar of the church. He also spoke at the Jerusalem Council, um, an event that probably took place after the writing of this letter, but we can read about it in Acts chapter 15. He then wrote a letter that we find in that chapter, and scholars note the writing style of that letter that we read in Acts 15 has many similarities with the writing of this letter of James. Scholars have noted other similarities in the writings of James in Jerusalem and the James who writes this letter. There's also a strong leaning to law and peacemaking that we find in this letter, and we know James and Jerusalem shared a passion for both. So, we join the majority of scholars who believe that the writer of this letter is James, the Lord's brother. So, by what authority does he write then? Well, as a prominent leader in the church, James would have been likely to write this letter. He would certainly have known the circumstances of his readers, and they would have known him. Perhaps that's why he doesn't mention his standing in the church in his greeting, because as a leader to those whom he writes would know him and his credentials well enough that he wouldn't need to. However, at first I couldn't help but wonder, wouldn't he at least say something about his earthly association with Jesus? And thinking about this, I was reminded of this story in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. Jesus was speaking to a crowd, and a man came to him and told him his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But Jesus replied to the man, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was making the point that perhaps James is making as he begins this letter, as well as what we find in all of Scripture. Faith in Christ is what brings us into the family of God, because that is the will of the Father. Even as Jesus' earthly brother, James, was alienated from God, being his half-brother gave him no authority to speak. Because of the fall, we all start out alienated from God. And so he sent his one and only son to redeem us, bringing us back into a right relationship with him. We belong to the family of God when we belong to Christ. James had placed his faith in Christ, and we know this because in chapter 2, verse 1, um, he says this, this is the only other time that we will see Jesus' name mentioned in this letter. However, these two places give powerful testimony for why James now writes. Moo points out that in a greeting, the title servant of God is common. However, the full description, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ that we find here, is not common. And only here in the New Testament does this language occur. Moo also points out that while we are familiar with the name Jesus Christ, the title Christ is the equivalent of the Old Testament Jewish word Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, king, that the Jews were expect, expecting because God had promised them a Messiah. On the day of Pentecost, Peter delivered a message in Acts 2.36 saying, 
God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord being a common title for God and Christ being Messiah or their Savior, Redeemer. When James identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said a mouthful. He acknowledges the deity of Christ and his redemption through Christ. He is in the family of God. James is Jesus' spiritual brother. Who are my brothers? Those who do the will of my Father. James writes as one who has been redeemed through his faith in Christ, and that is where his authority comes from. I've read several commentaries that have all given mention to the fact that James' humility is evident as he identifies himself to his readers as servant. In our world, servant can have a bad connotation. Another word for servant is slave. It feels a little low to be identified in such a way. However, I recognize that we are all servants, whether we would like to think of ourselves in that way or not. If you don't think of yourself as a servant, try not paying your taxes. We are all serving someone or something. Scripture says we can't serve two masters. God and money. And we either serve God or Satan. It sounds stark, but scripture is clear. We either acknowledge Jesus as Lord or we are still enslaved to Satan. Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 4.10 when Satan tried to tempt him and Jesus said, God only will I serve. Well, there are many prominent people in scripture who have been called servants. This was a question in uh, your lesson today um, anchored in the word. But here are some of them. Moses, called a servant of God, and it was said about Moses in the end, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. David, that shepherd boy, my servant David shall be king and prince forever. Paul, Jesus said he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul openly identified himself as a servant, going so far to say, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Peter, also called Simeon or Simon, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus once asked him, who do you say I am? And he answered saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this testimony, this confession of faith that you've given about me, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter went on to, to, to lead the early church. Well, these servants did not see themselves as having a lowly position, and they didn't have I've learned that in life, regardless of what I'm doing, I always enjoy serving. It can be from making the coffee to standing here today, and both are equally satisfying to me. Serving means I'm a participant rather than just a spectator. Sometimes we just need to be spectators. However, if I just live life as a spectator, always on the receiving end, I find it isn't very satisfying. It doesn't matter how great or small a task may seem. There is something that is satisfying about being a servant. Because when we are serving, others are receiving. 
When I consider that James refers to himself as a servant, I somehow think that even though it was a sign that he had humbled himself before God and made himself subservient to God, I wonder if in fact James would tell us he was boasting. James surely knew that servant of God is the highest calling, and we serve God in a myriad of ways. Well, to whom does he write? He writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The phrase 12 tribes has its beginning in Genesis with Jacob's 12 sons, and those descendants made up Israel. Those tribes, of course, were exiled and scattered as a result of the Assyrian and Babylonian victories that we read about in the Old Testament. However, through the prophets, the Lord promised to regather the exiled people of Israel and reconstitute the 12 tribes. Mu writes, Jesus' choice of 12 apostles suggests that his mission was to bring into being this eschatological or this future in time Israel. We see this phrase, 12 tribes, used all the way to Revelation. Mu says, by calling his readers the 12 tribes, James claims that they constitute the true people of God of the last days. The phrase in the dispersion, also seen in some translations as scattered among the nations, has been explained in the introduction. We know from Acts 8.1 that there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Stephen had just been stoned to death for his proclamation of the gospel of Christ and persecution uh, broke out against the church and with the exception of the apostles, the believers scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. We also read in Acts 11 that there was a famine and the beginning of social, political, and religious upheaval. It's also interesting to note that in 1 Peter, we find him addressing at the beginning of his letter, Exiles of the Dispersion. And many scholars say that he addresses Jews as well as Gentile Christians. So those who are in the dispersion can mean both Jew and Gentile. However, Mu points out that because of the early writing of this letter of James and the reference to Jewish law, the reference to Christ, Messiah, The fact that they meet in a synagogue, which is the meaning of the word assembly that we will read in chapter 2, verse 2, those to whom James writes would be Jewish since the early church was still predominantly Jewish. The fact that James addresses them throughout the letter as brothers, which we will see as we go forward, and with the emphasis of chapter 2, verse 1, of their faith in Christ, we can conclude they are Jewish Christians. So James writes to Jewish Christians who have been scattered primarily because of hardship and persecution and are now living in a new location and sometimes hostile environment. Finally, I want to address the word greetings. James addresses these believers and says greetings, that 19th word. Moody, and yes, I am saying moo and moody, two separate commentaries, Moody Commentary points out that this word also means rejoice. As I was thinking about that meaning, it helps serve as another indicator to whom James is writing. These are Jews who have placed a faith in Christ and as a result can rejoice no matter their circumstance. Well, I told you we'd talk about some other observations as we consider all we've covered so so far this morning, and here are four that I could not help but think about as we sifted through all this. 
Number one, A on your paper, the power of the resurrection. We've already talked about how Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. And I try to imagine what that would have been like. Scripture doesn't give us all the details of what went on in that family. However, as already pointed out this morning, we have some clues. Thinking about this, I can't help but wonder about the mocking. The frustration of having a brother who claimed to be the Son of God. The embarrassment of having him speak in crowds and what was going on in their minds when he was finally crucified. Was it sorrow? Was it relief? Was it a mixture of both? We do not know. What we do know is that this one who did not believe in Jesus became a pillar in the church. We also know not from scripture, but from the writings of Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, that James died a martyr's death. He was stoned to death. Eusebius, a fourth century historian, also writes that James refused to renounce his faith in Christ and instead declared before a multitude that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. We see a similar situation with the Apostle Paul. Paul, who hated Christians and had them killed, was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus following the resurrection, and Paul was never the same. Oh, the power of the resurrection and those who were witnesses of it by many proofs. We are all here today because of the power of the resurrection and the lives that were changed as a result of it. And if the resurrection wasn't astounding enough, imagine those who witnessed Jesus' ascension rise up into a cloud. Well, the second one is compassion and mercy. Thinking about Jesus appearing to those who do not believe in him seems tender to me and speaks of his compassion and mercy. In our human revenge, we might imagine that James and Paul would be the last people we would go to. And if we did, it might just be to say, I told you so. If I'd been treated like Jesus, I can imagine I would have chosen someone to lead the church and take the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles who showed a little more kindness towards me and was a little more sympathetic. As I was thinking about all this, I was reminded of John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Certainly, Jesus' intentions for appearing to the masses following the resurrection was not just so he could say, I told you so, but also to show the Father's compassion and mercy. God's purpose in sending his son is not to condemn us. We're already condemned, but rather to free us from our condemnation and the consequence of our sin. That's what the Father delights in doing, and that is why he sent his Son. Number three, who can get in on this great salvation? Anyone. Even those who have in the past rejected Christ, mocked him, and even hated those who follow him. And I say in the past because everyone needs to come to a saving faith in Christ before death. However, it should give us hope for those who we still long to see come to know him. You might be dealing with a loved one or friend who is rejecting Christ. Perhaps they're rejecting you. I look into our world and I often look at certain individuals and I think there is no hope for them. So much for them to overcome. 
I won't even bother to try. I don't even consider trying. And then I think of people like James and Paul, and if honest, myself, and I'm quickly reminded that with the power of this gospel, anything is possible because we all start out alienated from God. And then the last one, number four, that word rejoice. Those who place faith in Christ can rejoice. It doesn't matter what we encounter in our lives. Our hope is sure, not because we have faith. Everyone has faith. But because of in whom we have placed our faith. Well, the last paragraph in our introduction talks about the letter of James for today, for our times. And it's been said about James that it is not a book of theology. You may have noticed that James doesn't discuss that rich Christian doctrine that we find in those letters of Paul. However, it is theological, and you'll see this as we continue through this letter. Instead of speaking of the way of salvation, James speaks of a Christian's response to salvation. Remember, he's speaking to believers. James then emphasizes the practical outworking of one who has placed faith in Christ. It's been said that no other book in Scripture has been quoted any more than James. I don't know if that's true. But I have noticed that as different people ask what we would be studying this year, the response was anywhere from, that book was so helpful to me as a new Christian, to, whoa, why is this? Well, because James is always relevant. It is practical, it is full of application and conviction, no matter what time the reader is living, because we all deal with the same issues of the heart and the tension of living in a fallen and often hostile world. As we go through this letter, you're likely going to hear James speak to you in some of his exhortations, perhaps all of them. We're like these Jewish Christians who are dispersed. We can meet here and expect to hear a message like this one today. I have no hesitation of speaking about Jesus Christ today because I know you're all expecting that I will. We will go to our discussion groups following our teaching time, and we will freely speak of the truths of the Bible. When we go out of a setting like this, some of us might go into hostile territory among some people who would no doubt say, you are out of your mind. Suddenly what was easy to speak in our groups can become a bit more guarded, and our faith can become very private. The temptation can be great to just blend in with those around us, and the desires of this world, well, they can overtake us, and we find that we have succumbed to taking a path we really didn't intend to take. The same sins and temptations that plagued James readers are here with us today. I don't read a single one that seems foreign to me. And as I read these exhortations, I'm reminded why Christ had to come and die in order to pay the price for my sin. So, how can this verse serve as a foundation for how we view the rest of this letter? Well, once again, James writes, as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said at the beginning, it doesn't appear this James has given us much detail about his identity. And so we spent a good deal of time this morning uncovering his identity. I enjoyed reading all the different commentaries regarding 
who scholars believe is writing this letter. I want to know who's writing this letter, and I want it to be James, the Lord's brother. And all the details and observations pointed out this morning only magnify for me the compassion and mercy of God. That's why I wanted to look at them together, and I hope you've seen that as well. And yet as I pulled all this together, I thought, perhaps James has told his readers all they need to know about him for the purpose of what comes next in this letter. He is a servant, reminding his readers they too are servants, having placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Placing faith in Christ elevated them to the highest calling. They are in the family of God. Each life now lived out before one another needs to reflect the one to whom they belong. James is reminding his readers to reflect Christ, the one who came to serve so that they could receive. And receive they did. An eternal inheritance with the one true God they were once alienated from. As they serve the Lord, they will serve one another and they will receive from one another. And ultimately the world becomes a recipient of the outworking of that faith. That's the plan. As Christians, we are called to influence the world, not let the world influence us. It's hard and at times it seems impossible. However, we are each here today because we have been a recipient of the outworking of the faith that God has worked into each of the lives of his servants. Someone shared Christ with each one of us. Someone invited each one of us to this study. Someone, and I mean many someones, prepared a study for each one of us. Someone posted an invitation to this study on Facebook. Someone prayed for each one of us individually and thoughtfully placed each one of us in a discussion group. Someone will continue to pray for each one of us throughout the year. Someone organized a group of individual women to care, care for each of our children and will teach each of our children the truths of the Bible even as we gather to study. Someone made snacks for us. Someone made the coffee for us today. So many hands serving, but with one common purpose, to provide an environment so that each one of us might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then reflect his glory. Today, we are all recipients of the outworking of the faith that comes through the lives of servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope is that as we continue this study, that we would once again consider, consider the words of the Apostle Paul that we read earlier. I have made myself a servant to all, so that I might win more of them. And here's the final thought. The letter of James is a call for each of his readers, both past and present, that's you and me, to consider this. As one who has been reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and received the highest calling, how will you respond to all that you have received? And in just a moment, we'll be dismissed to our discussion groups. But first, Roberta Ash is going to come up and speak to us about her ministry here at Habits of the Heart. Thank you, ladies. <laughs> 